these phones have become, just as the side effect of a successful business model, essentially an obstacle to this type of inner spiritual development or awareness because it's all about the inner world. And these things keep you out of the inner world. They are, they are, uh, they are, you know, the screw tape of C.S. Lewis is now in its modern form is like an iPhone. And again, not that this is like malicious, but it's just uh, we have learned in the last six or seven years as these things became ubiquitous and really good at constantly demanding our attention, just how much of what is good and interesting in life is built off of the inner world. And you can't, if you avoid the inner world, uh, almost nothing really deeply satisfying can happen in your life. And that's what these things are doing. Thanks for joining us for episode two of the Ancient Wisdom Project podcast. In this episode, we welcome Cal Duport, a good friend of mine who helped me come up with the idea for the original Ancient Wisdom Project, as well as this podcast. Cal is a computer science professor at Georgetown University here in Washington, D.C., and a professional author who has published a number of advice books. In this episode, we discuss his latest book, Digital Minimalism, in which he warns us how insidious modern tech tools can be in the way they prevent us from living deep and fulfilling lives. Of course, it's not all bad news, as he also tells us how we can take back our time and attention from our smartphones and Instagram accounts, which ultimately will allow us to spend more time on things we truly value rather than trivial distractions. I also wanted to go a bit further than what he covers in his book. If you listen to the whole episode, you'll learn why, if you're under a certain age, digital minimalism can be existentially terrifying. You'll also learn why Cal is a fan of many ancient wisdom traditions and learn about his own experiences with ancient wisdom. And finally, you also learn why Cal recommends paying attention to boredom as a way to figure out where you should be spending your energy. Whenever I follow Cal's advice, good things tend to happen, and I'm pretty sure I'm not an anomaly. So if you can carve out about 50 minutes to listen to this episode, it'll be worth it. Enjoy. Right, so on episode two of the Ancient Wisdom Project podcast, we have Cal Newport as our guest. I'm very excited because Cal is basically the one that conceived of the uh, Ancient Wisdom Project uh, format and actually the podcast as well, and he's a pretty smart guy in general. So thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, well, I, uh, I take full credit, Dale. Uh, well, good. <laughs> it's also- for the failure of the podcast, you might have to uh, take the credit for that too, if if you're not compelling enough for some reason. So yeah, that's um, right. It's, it's all on my shoulders. Yes, <laughs> boom or bust. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So Cal, for those uh, listeners who don't know, uh, you are a tenured professor of uh, computer science at Georgetown University, and also the author of I think it's now six advice books. Uh, is that correct? Yep, six. And your latest is digital minimalism. How how did you end up doing both these simultaneous, very different careers? Well, I started the writing before I started the computer science career, I suppose, technically, because I, I started writing books professionally as an undergraduate in college. And so I was already on book contract 
for my second book when I began as a graduate student in computer science. So writing was something I, I was already doing, and I, I was writing these books during the early years of my grad, grad student to later years of my undergrad career that were focused really on student advice. I was a student writing student advice. Right. And then at, at some point as I got farther along in my graduate career towards the point where I was going to have to start thinking about the job market, I pivoted and wrote a book about career satisfaction, You know, trying to look at the question of how do people end up loving their work, and it's because, hey, that's what I was doing. So might as well take advantage of my status as an author to get some good research done on, on what's the right way to build a career that is satisfying. Mm -hmm. And so that brings you up to about 2012. That comes out right after I, I began as a professor at Georgetown. But, you know, the bulk of the writing, of course, happened when I was on the job market. Uh, so that's how I got up to 2012. And then once I was a, a computer science professor and doing that more professionally, I began to to think a little bit more about specifically my field, that is technology in particular, the impact of technology on society and culture. And it's, it's really from that mindset that led to my 2016 book, Deep Work, and certainly that mindset that led to digital minimalism. So I had always been writing, sort of writing about work, topics relevant to my life. And then somewhere around the time I became a professor, I pivoted and said, all right, it's time for me to start writing about this general field in, in which I actually practice professionally. That is pretty cool. I think there are very few people who get a book deal out of, uh, out of college. So that's pretty Im impressive. And I, I do want to talk about your most recent book, Digital Minimalism. I, I really enjoyed it. And I think it's kind of, in my perspective, leading into, into broader topics about what it means to live you know, a good life. But to start, what is digital minimalism and what problem is it trying to solve? Well, the, the motivation for the book was noticing the shift that seemed to happen in our culture right around, say, early 2017, late 2016. This shift where people were going from exuberance about all of the new technology in their personal life, the smartphones, the apps. They were going from exuberance to something that was like wariness. You could just feel this this general uneasiness drifting over our whole culture. And it was aimed at these phones they were holding and these tablets they had and how much time they were looking at them. And so I wanted to figure out two things. Why were people getting uneasy about technology in their personal life and what they should do about it? So Digital Minimalism, the book, tackles both those questions. Digital Minimalism, the philosophy, is the answer that the book promotes. Okay. And what is this kind of uneasiness that you're that you're mentioning? Can you give an example? Is it just being on Twitter, on Twitter all the time? Well, what you know, when I look into it, what what seemed to be the issue, and you know, this is not necessarily self-evident. What seemed to be the issue was not not utility. So you know, for the most part, people weren't too upset about the actual things they were doing when they were engaging with technology. I mean, they maybe thought some of it was kind of frivolous and, and there might've been some aspects of it that, that maybe made them feel a little bad, but they weren't, they weren't too upset about what they were doing when they looked at their phone or looking at their computer outside of work. The thing that was making people upset was how much time they were doing it. Hmm. And that seemed to be the shift was that people were beginning to feel like their autonomy was diminishing. They maybe signed up for Facebook in college for 
whatever, some random reason. They wanted to see their, their roommate's, you know, girlfriend status or something like that. And then they're looking up 10 years later and saying, man, I'm on this thing two hours a day, three hours a day. I'm looking at this when, you know, I'm supposed to be with my kids or I'm trying to be with my friends or I went on this hike and I'm not even noticing the woods like I used to because I can't help but trying to take pictures or looking at people's updates. And so it was this sense that as if their autonomy was being diminished by these devices and it wasn't what they signed up for. It's not the way their relationship with these devices used to be. And it was taking up so much time that it became hard to ignore. So, so I like to say it's really autonomy, not usefulness. If you want to understand what like most people are upset about when it comes to these devices and these applications. So when you say autonomy, uh, you mean, okay, I don't feel like I can control how much I'm using it, how much I'm using these tools, and it's taking away time from things I previously enjoyed and cared about. Yeah, so it's starting to diminish the quality of people's lives. So they would say in the abstract, I mean, there's nothing uh, abstractly objectionable about Instagram. What's objectionable is the fact that you're compulsively looking at it, and it's starting to take away time from things you used to enjoy more, or taking activities that are meaningful to you and starting to diminish them because you have to fragment your attention to constantly check these feeds, right? Yeah, so it's that idea that I didn't really sign up to look at this thing three to five hours a day, and yet that seems to be what's happening. Is this, now, it, it distractions have you know, always been around in some form. Is this just a new version of an old type of distraction, or is it fundamentally different than anything we've seen in uh, past eras? Well, the thing that makes it different is two properties. So one, you have universal accessibility. So it's with you at all times, which there, there's a, a good sort of meme going around when someone's talking about what it's like to be a student today. Um, they say the equivalent of like student life today would be, would be like if in the early 90s, you showed up to your classroom and you brought with you a TV and you set it up and plugged it in and put it on and you brought with you a phone and you, you, you plugged that in so you could you could make some calls to friends and you know you, you brought with you like a bunch of magazines and put them out there you know and, and, and you uh, and you set this all up including some pornographic magazines and you set this all up on the desk in front of you like okay now I'm going to pay attention you know uh, it's kind of the equivalent of that right so it's it's the universal accessibility that's one property it's in your pocket uh high-speed wireless internet is ubiquitous everywhere you go so you have you have ubiquitous access and then you marry that with uh, two giant advancements one is attention engineering so the actual purposeful design of application experiences to try to capture your attention or get you to use it longer than you thought you might need to use it and then you use also statistical content selection so you can use statistical machine learning algorithms to learn from your past behavior to select information for you to see that is going to optimize how much time you look at your device or look at that app. So you put these things together, you have universal accessibility plus attention engineering supercharged with statistical machine learning algorithms that can actually personalize content for you with the entire goal of trying to maximize engagement. And it's completely overwhelming for us in our brains, right? So it is like take distractions we've had before and amplify them by an order of magnitude. And I think the issue, the reason why we all got too so uneasy is that well, that was just way too effective. And so it became almost impossible to ignore the almost absurd amount of time so many people were spending looking down at this little glowing rectangle. But don't you think people are enjoying it? I mean, if I were a student in the 90s, I think it would be pretty cool if uh, 
I was able to watch TV during class, even if my grades suffered, I guess, a little bit. Um, but do you think, how have your own students or your friends or any, anyone uh, that you've interacted with on a regular basis felt like specifically it's been, it's been hurting them? I, you gave a few examples earlier, but I'm curious about your own uh, personal experience there with, with people you know. Well, I mean, this is the shift that seemed to happen yeah. around 2016, 2017, that these, these activities that people used to enjoy, like, oh, it's nice to go on, let's say, Facebook and see what, like, my friend's up to, or this is kind of interesting, or to look at, you know, Instagram, because I, I follow this, whatever, uh, athletic influencer, and it's inspiring, or something like that, or I, I see Jocko's watch, and it says 4.30 a.m., you know, on Twitter, and, you, you know, it's like, fine, it's like, interesting, something to do. And it shifted for a lot of people, including the people, you know, the students I see or people in my orbit. It shifted because uh, the the combination of that universal accessibility with those supercharged attention engineering and statistical content selection got people doing these behaviors they used to enjoy significantly more than they knew was useful or healthy, you know. So where maybe I, I, I used to look and I'd see Jocko's watch at, you know, look at it, you know, in the morning, I get inspired to work out. Now you maybe realize you spent two hours following Jocko related rabbit holes, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and you're like, okay, the, the first thing was motivating. The second thing is actually probably not in my best interest. And so students feel like they're completely under siege. Uh, students more than, more than anyone else really used a terminology of addiction when they talk to me. They say, I can't, I can't stop looking at this. I'm looking at this all the time. I'm looking at this, you know, way, way more, way, way more than is at all plausibly useful or entertaining. They don't feel entertained. It's almost like the switch that people have from recreational drinking to alcoholism. It's like, hey, I used to enjoy having some drinks with friends, but man, when I'm doing it all the time, it's it's no longer enjoyable anymore. Or maybe it's enjoyable in the moment, but the the overall negative impact is something that's hard to ignore. And that seems to be what's happening to people, right? And, and I got just to put a, an interesting aside on this is that this is the narrative you hear if you talk to normal people. Like, this is mainly what they're, those who are upset about technology, which is a lot of people, it's this is the narrative. It's almost 180 degrees different than, let's say, the standard media coverage mm -hmm. of technology and the techno backlash. And I found this really interesting because people often say, Cal, like you, you wrote this book, you talk about these things. The fact that there's such a general media push that's anti-technology or anti-social media, the fact that this has become a thing in the last year or two, this must be heartening. You must be happy about it. But I, I'm of complete mixed feelings because the narrative being explored by most of the media coverage is actually quite different from what I see out there talking to normal people. The, the narrative from the media coverage focuses almost entirely on the what that's happening when you look at social media. What is the information people are seeing? Is it good information? Is it bad information? Uh, is it real information? Is it fake information? Like this is where the focus is, is obviously these things are vital, but man, we got to be careful about what's on them. And it's really not at all the concern that the average person has, right? I mean, the average mm -hmm. person is not concerned about the specific content they're seeing, they're concerned that they're looking at the content when they're supposed to be spending time with their kids. So the media presumes that the tools and the amount of time we're looking at these devices, at these content sources is fundamentally okay if only they could change what is being shown to the, to the average person. Yeah, as far as I can tell, and I think this is because of the ubiquitous and necessary presence of these tools in the very narrow field of being 
a journalist who covers technology. <laughs> right. So, so it's, it's obviously a, a biased situation because maybe as a journalist, your, your whole livelihood depends on you catching up with breaking news on Twitter, your contracts, as some journalists have told me, might depend on like your social media following. So it's really central to their world and they extrapolate that out to the world writ large. And they, they, there tends to be in the media coverage what we could think of as a, a public good mindset. Right. Uh, social media is a public good. And, you know, so it's, it's sort of like an unavoidable and important part of societal functioning. So what we should be concerned about is making sure that we ensure that this public good is, you know, behaving properly and serving the public as, as good as possible. Just like water, the water system is a public good or the electrical grid is a public good. And, and we need to come in there and make sure that, you know, the, the electrical utilities are are providing this good fairly and in the right way or that the water we're getting from the water utilities is clean because man, we need it. And we got to make sure public goods are protected, which is different than the way I think most people probably see this more through a public harm type mindset, like the way we used to think about tobacco, mm-hmm. which is, Hey, we're not going to outlaw this thing. Right. And we have, you know, there's freedom in this country and it's not necessarily all that bad, but we're, we're a little bit wary of what this product can do, especially with young people or especially if it's misused. So we're going to, we're going to approach it kind of warily. We're going to maybe as a, as a culture start to sort of change the way we think about this, be a little bit wary about it. Maybe it's not so great to smoke two packs a day. Maybe it's not so great equivalently to have all these social media apps on your phone. That's the public harm way of thinking about it. And they're, they're really different. There's the you know public good. It's like well, obviously, like everyone needs to be using this all the time. So, what we have to focus on is making sure that those who are maintaining this public good do so with the public's interest in mind. And the public harm is, man, we got to start you know changing our mindset about the necessity of spending time on all of these services all the time. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating uh, the competing interest, like like you said, between tech journalists and how the average. Uh, person views their social media use or their technology tool use it's in what you're saying with uh, the two factors about the ubiquity and the engineering that goes into this kind of seems analogous to something like junk food right junk food is now or modern food sources are it's ubiquitous right and a lot of these foods um, are specifically engineered to be quite fatty and sweet which we are evolved to really seek out but in the wrong context you're just going to get unhealthy and overweight and all that kind of stuff um so is there any in your book you talk about a bunch of strategies but it starts off with the the digital declutter what is that so the the clutter is one possible way to jumpstart a conversion to the digital minimalist philosophy. So the, the digital minimalism philosophy uh, says that you should be much more intentional about technology use in your personal life, that you should start with your values, what you really care about, what you really want to spend time on, then work backwards and say, hey, if, if for these things I really care about, if there's some way I can strategically deploy tech that's going to amplify or support them, then yeah, I should do that. But otherwise, I'll ignore everything else. So it's working backwards from what you really care about, supporting it, carefully with tech and then focusing on getting after those things that matter. Uh, and that stands in contrast to the maximalism mindset, which is, Hey, if this tech tool device or app has any benefit, it could bring me, that means I should probably have it in my life. Cause I want to want to miss out on that benefit 
Uh, oh, and this app, that might be interesting. Well, let me download that. Oh, this device has some feature that looks interesting. I better buy that as well. That's the opposite of minimalism. It's a maximalist mindset. And it leads to a, a digital life that is incredibly cluttered. And the, the cost of that clutter far outweighs the sort of aggregate of these small little benefits. So how do you become a digital minimalist? Well, something I found to be effective is essentially ripping the Band-Aid off. And so that's the declutter. And it basically says, hey, step away from all of these sort of optional technologies in your personal life. Step away for a little while. Get back in touch with what really matters to you, what you really want to do with your time. Experiment, reflect, get your wife in order, and then start from scratch. Say, okay, now I'm not just going to go back to everything I was doing before. I'm going to add things from scratch. Like, and if I add back a technology, it'll be because of a particular story of this is what it's going to help. And so it's the equivalent of like what physical declutterers would talk about with your closet that, you know, you, you don't go in and like occasionally take a few things out uh, or, or hide them, whatever the closet, I guess, whatever the closet equivalent of turning off your notifications would be. And you, know, you don't just go to the container store and buy some plastic boxes and say, I'll just rearrange things in there or whatever, you know, the closet equivalent would be of I moved my iPhone icons to the second page or something sure. like that. You empty the whole thing. You empty it till it's empty. And then you say, what do I really want to put in there? And you only put in the stuff that you really want to keep. Like that's the way you handle clutter with your physical stuff. I'm saying you probably have to do the same thing with your digital. Just clean out that entire digital closet. Get back in touch with what you really want to do. You know, maybe read a little ancient wisdom. I think uh, you could probably help people with that. You know, like what matters, what I really want to do. And then you're then when you reintroduce some things, it's for a purpose. You know, uh, this thing, this activity is really important to me. This app is going to help me you know, organize a group to do this. Great. I'll bring that tech back in my life. Uh, and it's a completely different relationship with technology than what I think most people have right now. I like the idea of stripping things away and starting with a blank slate. However, I'm a little skeptical because you, you mentioned that, you know, making more time for their things you value. And in some case, that's obvious but in other cases i i have this suspicion that when a lot of these distractions even though it's partly the tools fault or a lot of times it is the tools fault we want the distraction because <laughs> there's something unpleasant about you know your life that may be going on or if, if i do the d digital declutter i may find that oh my life is actually doesn't have much going on i need to, i need to figure out the values have you found that to be the case at all, or is it has it been that most people that have taken on the digital declutter uh, technique and then move on to digitalism have found that there are things that they already inherently value and, and has automatically filled that void or that time? It seems to be very age-based. Okay. So under a certain age, stepping away from the technology is existentially terrifying. Okay. I mean, it's like a really bracing, difficult situation. I mean, if you're of a certain age, let's say you went through your late adolescence through your current age with full access to portable social media and ubiquitous high-speed wireless, right? So like you, you, were, um, you, you came into your late adolescence after 2012. A lot of the people in that demographic, when they tried to declutter, it was terrifying. I mean, it really was like staring into the void. Like, what am I... Yeah. What am I supposed to do? What am I doing with my life? There, we, I was surprised to discover the degree 
to which this ubiquitous source of distraction can essentially eliminate self-reflection from your life because it, it, it frees you from those moments of for, forced solitude that we, we used to always have. And so for a lot of young people, when they step away from those distractions, it's like an avalanche of all that type of self-reflection that you, you really were supposed to probably be doing all throughout your teen years and your early college uh-huh. years. And you were supposed to be, you know, morosely walking around campus in your turtleneck and holding a Camus book and, you know, all that stuff that they missed, all those thoughts are happening at once. And it can, it, it can be incredibly terrifying people after a certain age. So people roughly my age or older who, who really didn't have access to these things till even after college, it's not so hard. They, they would describe the, the clutter much more like a rediscovery a rediscovery of things they used to like to do that they were surprised to discover, you know, oh, I really used to love that. I'm surprised by how little I do that anymore. Great. Now I can get back to it. So, I mean, your, your point is good because I was surprised by it. Yeah. You know, I was just old enough to be like, yeah, it's just people, yeah, they rediscover like, man, you reading and doing these things with friends and this community organizations and spending more time at my church or whatever it was like these things that people used to do. And they would just realize that a clutter, man, I got away from that. But if you're 25, yeah, it's a it's a it's a much much scarier experience. But man, scary is good. You can't. There's there's nothing to be gained by continually ignoring the scary stuff. I mean, you 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 have to. Let's get a little Nietzschean right here. Like you have to see that void. You have to confront at some point. Like, what am I all about? And if the answer is, man, I don't know. There's no swifter kick in the pants to say, well, then I better get after figuring that out. And really, until you do, you're you're living in a, a, a dream walk. You're one of the people in the pods in the matrix, right? I mean, you have to get there. You got to confront the, the, the bare essentials of your life. What sucks, what's good, the stuff that you wish wasn't true, the aspiration that you were maybe too timid to, to voice or to really recognize as being there. You got to confront all of that mess before you can start to build something that's really resilient and meaningful. And so this was a, like a profound thing that I, more profound than I in, expected to encounter when I was researching this book, the extent to which the fundamentals of a meaningful life are being stripped away from people in this seemingly innocuous but persistent way in which if your attention is completely turned outwards towards this thing all the time, that impact on what's happening inside can be surprisingly large. Yeah, I think I maybe cite this study in your book where I think people... I forget how it exactly was framed, but basically they gave them rather get electroshocks than be bored at any time. Like they gave themselves shocks. I think, was that in your book? Um, I've heard it. It wasn't in my book, but I've heard it. Yeah. Okay. So I I thought of that and I was like, you know, because I I do think examining your life is incredibly difficult. And uh, I think the age, the age thing that you mentioned is interesting. What do you, so for the younger folks uh, that have for the first time to confront the, you know, the, the gaping void, are, what would you recommend to them? Because I think I, I wouldn't know where, I still don't exactly know where to start necessarily if I'm going, hey, I've never, I've never thought about what I want for my life or what makes life meaningful. Uh, it, it seems incredibly daunting. What, it, what do you recommend? Yeah. Well, that's a big question. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it's, it's kind and of, I'm, I'm yeah. going to go silent and you can talk for the rest yeah. of the podcast here. Yeah. That's the, it's like the, that's the core of basically all philosophies sure. <laughs> is, is trying to answer that question. Uh, and obviously like the, the final answers are beyond the scope of 
you know, me or my book. But one mm-hmm. thing at a, a lower scope that I recommend to people is, look, your goal is not, let's say you, you do the clutter. Your goal is not to answer all these questions. Your goal is start to get some ideas and get some things in place. And then it's a long process to really work out what you're all about, but you have to start it. You have to start the process, which you see a lot of this in a lot of the wisdom traditions you studied, for example. I mean, mm-hmm. you see a lot of these sort of journey metaphors where there's a, uh, or journey mythologies, yeah, this, which is pretty universal that, you know, this is like Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress or the Israelites in the desert or, sure. I mean, whatever. There's, there's this, this mythology of journey is quite common. Uh, and so you have to, you have to start to journey at some point. Now let's make that much more prosaic if we're talking about a 25 year old who's saying, uh, I'm not doing any social media, streaming video, video games, and I'm, I'm greatly reducing and consolidating like online, you know, text communication to set periods. So like there's big periods of my day where uh, I don't have a digital thing to look at. You know, the, the first steps there is to find some things that you value and give you meaning and are satisfying and say, great, I want to do more of those and I want to support those things. And that's the first step. And that's the first step on the journey towards a, a more more meaningful life and so yeah the, the the big question you don't want to get paralyzed by the big question of i'm going to sit here and figure out everything in life but you do want to shift from i'm not thinking about this at all because i can just distract myself from all these concerns to i'm starting to recognize these things that that are both concerning and uplifting me and i'm starting to make some movement informed by them i'm starting to move towards some activities that seem to make me you know feel better about the stuff that seems important and seems to diminish some of the the bad feelings i have about some of these other things that are that are that are hanging around and looming over me and it's it's, so it's about getting started and the phone you know for a lot of people is like that that obstacle that's keeping you in the village and and preventing the original that sort of epic journey from beginning absolutely you know go into the ancient wisdom piece of it in your book it seems like you overlap quite a bit with uh what ancient wisdom traditions recommend there's a lot of solitude retreats i I think your deliberate leisure or or high quality leisure section resonates a lot or overlaps a lot with uh, epicurus who basically did a cost benefit analysis of the things that would bring the greatest pleasure and it wasn't high quality meals it was spending time with friends and discussing philosophy and et cetera, et cetera. What's your experience with ancient wisdom traditions in your own, in, in your own life? Well, if any, yeah, well, I, I, as you know, since I was a, an advocate of, of you pursuing this per particular project, I, you know, I'm of the mindset that, you know, what you often have entrenched in bodies of ancient wisdom is uh, essentially we can think of it as revelation in the much more pragmatic sense of uh, these are these are underlying ways of living and thinking that have been selected right they've survived mm-hmm. for thousands of years they've been evolved and survived for thousands of years because they seem to be effective in helping people you know move towards the things that resonate with the human experience and let's say you know reduce the impact of the things that can be deadening to the human experience. So they're, they're in some sense, the ultimate, they're the ultimate self-help guide because the self-help guide that's based off of four or 5,000, you know, depending <laughs> four or 5,000 years worth of, uh, experiment and, and experimentation. And so, you know, I'm a big believer. There's a lot of wisdom to be found in ancient wisdom. Now people, you know, modern, modern people, especially modern young people, especially modern young people in the West, they, 
they struggle with ancient wisdom type traditions because typically they're coming at it strictly through a post-enlightenment empiricist type of mindset, which is right. like, well, look, if you're writing something down in the book, it's you're, these are empirical observations and ancient wisdom traditions are all about assenting to collections of, of uh, empirical facts. You're assenting to the truth of the, you know, empirical reality that this happened, this is true. And, you know, of course, None of that type of mindset was really around when these things were crafted. They're they're largely experiential, like mm-hmm. the, it's they're they're largely not cognitive. They're not things to necessarily just be studied and just rationally. Like I now have new information, like you would out of a, a textbook. I mean, it's the 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 impact and in information is supposed to be essentially experienced through. I do these rituals. I act as if I, uh, you know, what if you lived as if. There was whatever the tradition says. There's, you know, the like in the Greek pantheon of these gods that could interfere in these ways and that. Like, okay, so how would I live? How that helped me understand the world? And there's sort of great understanding that comes out of it. So, uh, so I've been a long, you know, admirer of multiple ancient wisdom traditions because, like you, I think these are some of the best sources of self-help we have. And all it takes is really stepping out of the incredibly sort of colloquial cognitive context in which I think so many of us exist right now that say like, this is a bad textbook. <laughs> if, you can, if you can leave that mindset, um, you leave that mindset and, and leave, you know, the, like what Postman would call the sort of uh, the textural worldview. We really understand things as, you know, just texts that, that capture empirical realities that we engage with. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's complicated. It's a different type of way of approaching, uh, it's a different type of way of approaching realities, but they're undeniably effective. Uh, which is why I think, by the way, digital minimalism has been, you know, uh, it's been picked up a lot in certain religious circles, which I'm, I'm not really surprised about, actually. Uh, they, they find, I've seen this in some Islamic circles, I've certainly seen it in uh, uh, several different Christian denominations where uh, the book is really picking up. And, and I think it's because it, it as you said, it, it resonates with some of the type of thinking that's long been established in those traditions. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, especially the, there's all sorts of, pretty much every tradition I've studied or experienced seems to have some sort of solitude practice, reflection practice. Uh, And even when we were talking earlier about trying to figure out your life values, you know, there's the Catholic Jesuit discernment practice, which is really just about paying attention to everything that's in your world. But through the context of not just your own will, but God's will, which I think is quite powerful, even if you don't uh, necessarily believe in the post-Enlightenment empirical sense, but saying that your will, it's not just about what you want, it's about what the world wants from you, right? Um, So it's quite powerful. So I, I don't know if you're totally comfortable discussing this, but like, did you grow up with any particular religion or as is your about your wife or are you raising your kids in any particular tradition? Well, we, we grew up Christian. My grandfather was a pretty well-respected Baptist theologian, so like an academic scholar of Baptist tradition. And then currently my wife and kids are Jewish, so I'm pretty entrenched in, in that wisdom practice as well. So those are probably the two, those are probably the two collections of theology I know best. So like those two, those two heads of the three-headed Judeo-Christian, um, 
Judeo-Christian history. And I'm like relatively, I mean, uh, and obviously it, it differs a lot. I mean, even within Christianity, between mm-hmm. denominations, as you know, you get massive massive differences if we're talking about like the jesuits at georgetown versus the southern baptist uh it it all can be quite different uh and it's it's all quite rich and i still study both of them and you know know quite a bit and draw quite a bit from those traditions it's with with judaism since your since your wife is jewish and you're raising your family jewish what have you found particularly useful uh to draw from in, in in that tradition well one thing that's great about that tradition is it's one of the oldest yeah right so it uh it's it's one of the older traditions it's really had the the longest sort of time to gestate and develop and because of that i think it's probably one of the most effective i think like for for one thing you know i think in jewish tradition like a lot of thought has gone into various types of life cycles events i think probably that, you know, the Jews really have death figured out very well. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the rituals they've built around that are just uh, masterworks in human psychology. Mm-hmm. And that's just something that's evolved over time. Uh, something else I like in the Jewish tradition, there's a sort of a, a sub-practice within Judaism called the Musar practice, M-U-S-S-A-R, which dates back to medieval times. But it's a, it's a practice of systematic improvement of soul traits, so it's essentially a practice of, you know, systematically trying to improve aspects of your character that should be better, mm-hmm. which, you know, I think is uh, that is like a really interesting type of uh, powerful tradition. Um, so that's interesting. I, I, you know, it's very it's very like a lot of these wisdom traditions. It's it it's heavily draws on sort of moral intuition. Like a lot of what's happening with these traditions is that people are wired with these intuitions that this just strikes me as good and this strikes me as bad and this strikes me as satisfying or awe-provoking and this strikes me as somehow makes me not feel good. We, there's these, these uh, deep intuitions and the, the rituals and frameworks built up in something like Judaism or Christianity work with those. Right. You know, that's what they want to do is, you know, how do we know this is effective? Because it's resonating with these moral intuitions. You know, like that's the measure, that's the measure of effectiveness. So I think, I think there's a lot of interesting, uh, a lot of interesting thought in there. Of course, as a scholar, I like the, the, the Jewish focus on uh, debate and grappling with text. And they find that there's wisdom to be gained in the actual sort of intellectual wrangling with, well, what does this mean? Does it really mean that? Why doesn't it mean this? It, it, it gives a, a sort of a fluid and powerful and adaptable intimations of the divine. So it's a, it's a very sophisticated, very sophisticated, psychologically astute set of religious practices. Which is not how most, I think a lot of people don't view it that way. It's quite, you know, it just seems outdated in a lot of cases. And it, I, I think it does sound, certainly sound outdated, but like you said, you know, being, I think the kind of the dialectic going back and forth with the material that the sources of these, it's not being unclear. Basically, a lot of people have been wrestling with the concepts in these ancient, ancient traditions and Judaism in particular, and they've come out with some really interesting insights that are, that are still particularly useful and probably came out of smarter debate than what we typically have today. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I, I think a lot of what goes on is, again, is when, when people encounter a tra- tradition like this, if you see it through the empirical mindset, you're saying, yeah, the, the, the goal of anybody of knowledge essentially is to sort of 
you know, help give a good exclamation explanation for empirically observable events. And like, well, this, this doesn't like, what is this? Right. What is this helping? This is not <laughs> helping me better. You know, I, I can, it's not helping me better understand like the cycles of the moon or this or that. And, and I don't think the walls of this city fell with a blow, you know, of a cannon or that the moon stood still. Like this isn't, these empirical events don't seem like um, that they're validatable or it's helping me understand empirical events. But I mean, of course, these traditions, uh, they were built when that was not a goal. You know what's the equivalent of their the equivalent of their equivalent of you know successfully predicting empirical observations is you know uh, successfully resonating with these deeper intuitions that people have, right? Right. I mean, when when people talk about uh, revelation, if you're sort of like a, a naive observer of religion, you you see that like, like literally in terms of this entity at some point transmitted words you know to this person on a mountain there was fire next to him or something like that and like well yeah. that, that seems like i don't know implausible that, that empirical event happened <laughs> but you, you think in the context of these traditions right if you're if you're writing about this in, in the sort of like the early medieval period or in the the turn of the first millennium or something like that it's like you no know, revelation meaning that um it's fundamentally true in the sense that this way of understanding and acting in the world resonates powerfully with these deep intuitions and other ways don't Right. You know, so understanding the world this way, let's think about it. And the, the interesting thing about uh, the Jews, because they're, they're, they've been around so long, the, the younger religions, and I'm, I'm even Christianity is young in this context, even though it's incredibly old. Uh, you know, they 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 might just still say, you know, just act. It's act as if, right? I mean, that's how all these things are: act as if, act as if this is how the world works. That there is this God, and let's understand that as like angels doing this and that, and then mm-hmm. it gives you a model for for sort of understanding experience and especially inner experience that, that ends up working. You do the rituals, you act as if this is the way things work and, and you have, you know, it resonates and the world makes much more sense. This is like classic Christian apologia. Um, but Judaism has been around long enough that they, they sort of openly admit that that's what it is in a way that like younger Christianity still says, no, 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 look, just you, creeds are important. And the mm-hmm. way, the way you get the benefit of acting as if it just say, you, you, you have to, we are going to all act as if, whereas like in Judaism, they'll talk about like, well, yeah, we don't really know what God is or we don't, you know, they're, they're much more open, <laughs> you know, sure. ab- about the fact that these are, these are, these are uh, ways of structuring, especially in our experience in a way that resonates and works that has really been, been evolved through experience over thousands of years. So they're, they're old enough that they're a little bit more open in the way they talk about how these spiritual technologies actually work. But this is, of course, a huge divergence from <laughs> digital minimalism. But it's, you know, it's, yeah. it's interesting, though, right? And, and, and I, I think where it connects, though, is that if we go to the, the much less important scale of figuring out, like, what technology to use, you're playing on the same ground in some sense. Is that, like, you're, you're, what, what you get when you have the space and the clutter is to, to, to tune back into the, this inner world and these inner intuitions of what resonates and what repulses. And, and, and it starts you on this process of trying to rebuild life around that. Now, I mean, of course, you're going to need help along the way, and ancient wisdom traditions can really be a part of that help. There can be other things that can get you there. Uh, but this is why I think religious groups in particular are interested in this book is because these phones have become, just as the side effect of a successful business model, essentially an obstacle to this type of inner spiritual development or awareness because it's all about the inner world. 
and these things keep you out of the inner world. They are, they are, uh, they are, you know, the screw tape of C.S. Lewis is now in its modern form is like an iPhone. And again, not that this is like malicious, but it's just, uh, we have learned in the last six or seven years as these things became ubiquitous and really good at constantly demanding our attention, just how much of what is good and interesting in life is built off of the inner world. And you can't, if you avoid the inner world, uh, almost nothing really deeply satisfying can happen in your life. And that's what these things are doing. Well, clearly you haven't heard of the new inner world app that just came out and that pings you little insights every uh, couple minutes. And you get experience levels and uh, with, with some few in-app purchases, yes. you can accelerate right. your progress. Yeah. Well, you can, you can subscribe and uh, get rid of the ads if you'd like. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's interesting that you've drawn this kind of link between your digital minimalism book and, and kind of the atrophying of, of religion itself. So it may, <laughs> I, it may be possible that, hey, iPhones is partially, are partially responsible for uh, people not you know, doing religion or church or the synagogue effectively, you know, um, which I find, which I find particularly fascinating just from the, the social commentary. I'll be curious to see how it plays out in the next, you know, few years or, or decades and see how people respond uh, to these, to these new tools. Yeah. There, there's a typical cycle you know, 10 years, right? You have new technology of the 10 year grace period, the cycle of exuberance. And then after that, people begin to get a little more critical and say, okay, going forward, how do I actually want to integrate this into my life? And that's basically the cycle we came out of a few years ago. If we think about, you know, the iPhone roughly 2007 to 2017, 10 year period, general exuberance, uh, first adopter culture starts to go mainstream. Let's download it. Let's try it. We got to experiment. We got to see what we're dealing with. 10 year passes. Then we start to say, all right, how do we now that that excitement is gone and iPhone's not exciting. Social media is not exciting. We're used to it. Now let's start to figure out how do we want to integrate this into our life long term. And so we're in some sense, we're just at that also that, that natural piece of the cycle that the time has come that we're not really so exuberant anymore. And so like it's, people aren't going to of a certain age just download TikTok because it exists in a way that they might have, you know, 10 years ago. Um, you know, in, in other parts of the country where, where the cycle started a little later, those type of apps are doing even better because, you know, people are different on the, on the cycle. But I, that gives me some hope as well. And I pick it up among young people too. There's definitely a growing counterculture around resisting these. I mean, as it becomes more clear that, yeah, the reason you're using this all the time is not because you found some bold, new, authentic way to communicate, but instead because of, you know, the, these sort of nerds in California that are billionaires, like want to make more money <laughs> off of you, you know, that message kind of resonates with young people. And they're like, oh, like, I don't know if Mark Zuckerberg is who I want to be, you know, dedicating all of my time to enriching. So there's a growing counterculture among young people that, hey, what is more rebellious now than to not use social media at all? Like that's becoming the new cool. So, so that, that all gives me hope. Uh, this is a cycle. Uh, it was a particularly severe cycle, but now we're starting to step back and say, what do I really want to take away from all of this stuff that's come around the last 10 years? What do I really want to put in my life? And that's where I hope philosophies like digital minimalism give people some guide to figuring that out. Yeah, absolutely. I, maybe these young people are going to discover that, hey, 
to really rebel, I need to become a uh, Zen monk or something like that. So, uh, which would be kind of funny, I think. Uh, so I think when we, we were discussing kind of the conception of this podcast, the idea was going to be that I interview people to help me with my own problem, which is that I am now 30, I'm th- 31, I'm 31, uh, feel a little bit stuck um, about what I should be doing. I'm not starving, you know, I have some kind of pseudo stable income that makes uh, makes me fairly materially comfortable but i'm just feeling like i'm not doing what i should be doing what do you recommend as a process for figuring that out it's too broad of a question but let me know but i'm curious to hear your take as far as what has either worked for you or worked for others that you that you've helped uh along the way well the the digital minimalist aspect of the broader answer to that question mm-hmm. is you know you, you're at a stage where you want to you want to ensure that the attention economy is not essentially uh, impeding your progress to figure out those questions sure and so you know in your situation you could be pretty careful about uh, how you're allowing those type of technologies into your life like maybe in your situation you want a pretty dumbed down phone. If not, you maybe want to spend, you know, six months even with a, a feature phone as opposed to a smartphone. I mean, essentially, you know, and, and relegate important computer behaviors, internet behaviors to a schedule, to a laptop, you know. Mm-hmm. So you still go out and see these things, look for this information, but it's an hour on these days and, and now it's a constant thing. Like basically opening up a lot of space that you are going to have to confront the inner and that you're going to be seeking things to fill. You know, that's useful. Another thing that came out of this, out of the book research is that boredom can be very useful in this endeavor. It's a very strong human emotion and, and very strong human reactions usually have some pretty useful evolutionary purpose, right? We, we don't evolve very strong things that we, we, things that are either very attractive or very unattractive like boredom. We don't evolve them randomly. They usually have a reason. So this is something that people do during the declutters is where they see where their boredom drives them when they don't have a phone as an option. Because the boredom feels bad. It's a drive. I want to get rid of this. So, okay, what does it push me towards? If I can't look at a screen, which obviously didn't exist in the evolutionary context in which boredom right. evolved, what, is it, what does it seem to be driving me to do? What seems to get rid of this boredom? What seems to be effective? Uh, that sort of boredom whispering can be quite important because it might, it might push you towards like, uh, these type of activities, like this is something that's starting to give me a little bit more resonance. And then you're building off of that. You know, you're trying to understand like what's, what's resonating, what's not and following those paths. It's a sort of constructing that life from scratch. Now, now exactly how you do it gets more complicated. There, there seems to be like aspects like professional, professional, social, uh, what is it? Professional, social, uh, spiritual and personal. Like there's some categories I know that people use when exploring this. Like, well, Mm -hmm. what is it I want to do in my professional life? Okay. I have to follow those intuitions there and start making some changes, experimentations. What do I ideally want my social life to be like? Great. Let me start experimenting there, following my intuitions. What do I want sort of like the time with my, 
myself to be like, let me follow those intuitions. What type of activities are truly meaningful? Um, and, and what, in terms of like family and community, what do I really want that life to look like when we follow these intuitions and build it? So it's like you're constructing, following your intuitions through experimentation and reflection and trying to construct these edifices in those core areas. You know, none of that's easy. It all takes time. But what I do know for sure is that the, the little glowing rectangle in your hand can go a long way towards slowing down that process, if not impeding it completely. I really like this idea of using boredom as kind of the baseline to determine where where your inclinations are, what you're what you are drawn to. I think that's a very non-intuitive way to think about boredom. Yeah, uh, but but it makes sense. I mean, these drives, strong drives, have purpose. We don't hunger, you know, these are, these are thirst. These are strong drives. They have purpose, they have evolutionary value. And my understanding of boredom is that, you know, all species are energy. You want to minimize energy expenditure. That's just a basic survival trait. You want to not expend energy. You don't need to expend because otherwise you won't have it when you need to get away from the predator. Humans have this extra layer though, that most almost no other species has, which is we will overcome that instinct towards energy minimization to go out and do things that are not urgently needed in the short term. We will go out there and invent fire and the wheel and language and build things and invent things and do poetry and do art. What drives us to get past that energy minimization instinct and actually do that type of action, meaningful, non-urgent action on which like all of human civilization is based? I think boredom is the whole point. You know, cats don't get bored. <laughs> they're completely happy. They're minimizing energy. They're in the sun, you know, and they don't need to move. Humans get bored. And I think it's the secret to our success. So I think, yeah, boredom is, is very strong. But we know we always get in trouble when we subvert deep human drives with technologies that did not exist in the evolutionary context. I mean, this is like the hunger drive. You subvert it with engineered fast food. It's terrible for our health, right? You know, uh, it's the same thing. Like a lot of young men have, they've been writing me, you know, uh, because of digital minimalism, when they subvert the sex drive with like online pornography, it has really bad consequences. This is something that did not exist in the evolutionary context in which that, that drive actually evolved. And I think the same thing, if you take the boredom drive and subvert it with this glowing rectangle will show me something an algorithm selected. It'll give me this sort of in the moment sense of boredom satisfaction. What happens? Well, ah, you're avoiding the thing that the boredom was supposed to drive you to do, which was the hard but ultimately meaningful types of activities that have always defined a meaningful human life. That's pretty, pretty deep for a, uh, you know, to wrap up the podcast, I wish, I wish we had more time to chat and maybe we'll do a uh, follow-up episode um, at some point. But Cal, I'm definitely going to take your ideas and try to implement them. I, I specifically like the idea of purposely being bored, like, like we discussed, and I, I, having this other concept behind it with, with subverting evolutionary drives and applying it to things that are, I guess, not intuitive um, is, is, is pretty fascinating. So Cal, thanks for coming on the show and uh, hopefully we can do it again soon. Yeah, my pleasure. I don't, I don't usually get a chance to dive these deep on those aspects in most of the media I do. So yeah, it was a welcome opportunity to uh, wax philosophic <laughs> well above my pay grade. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, 
I wanted this to be more like a uh, kind of dorm room bull session, you know, where we're, uh, we're missing the, uh, the cheap vodka though. That's what, <laughs> that, that, that's what we're missing from the dorm room setup, right? Aren't we supposed to be drinking like white Russians or something? You're, and <laughs> you're not drinking cheap vodka at the moment. Yeah. Oh, I should have <laughs> gave you those instructions before we started. Yes. Yeah, it's not six <laughs> o'clock yet. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. I'm on a college schedule here. All right. Um, all right. Well, thanks again, Cal. And, uh, let's do it again soon. Great. Thanks Dale.